0: Stocks for beginners. Phil Muscatello and Finpods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation.
1: I'm looking for companies that really are early in their journey. They've got incredible potential. Typically, they all have incredible founder teams, a culture of innovation, and you know, they've really got something to the story. But also, these days, I feel that they're at a reasonable valuation. My thesis for each of those kind of looks beyond the hype and sees a day where all of those companies potentially are generating, providing services or products that I feel the world will need more of in the future. Hi,
2: and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners.
1: I'm Phil Muscatello.
2: How can you approach the market today? What place does cash have in your portfolio? And what can better experience teach us? I'm joined today by Luke Hallard from Seven Investing. Hello, Luke.
1: Hi, Phil. Always a pleasure to be on the show.
2: Now, Seven Investing is an American company and you're an Englishman. Just tell us a little bit about um, your role
1: in Seven Investing and what you're providing. Yeah, I'm a lead advisor for the company. We have um, seven lead advisors. We've all got our own domains of interest. I guess I class, I think of myself as the sort of fintech AI innovation guy. So I'm always looking for fun companies for my own recommendations and for my own portfolio that I feel are providing products or services that the world's going to need more of in the future. That's really what drives my own kind of hobbies and interests but also drives uh, my stock recommendations for Seven Investing.
2: Luke, you recently posted a Twitter thread reviewing your portfolio, where you reflected on the performance and honestly appraised the role of each company in generating returns. His portfolio review thread is now closing in on half a million views, and that's where you reviewed, what was it about 20
1: companies, Luke, from memory? Yeah, I did a bit of a, a transparent look back at the last 19 uh-huh. years of investing and picked yep. out 20 sort of interesting stories I tried to learn from as I was doing that review myself.
2: And so after that, you received questions and commenters, and you've had some valuable questions, which generated another thread, which we're going to go through today, uh, because I believe it has valuable lessons for all investors, no matter your knowledge level. So the first uh, question that you dealt
1: with was, how do you structure your portfolio? So... And I've, I've sort of backed into this over the course of many years, and trying different things out. And this is what's worked for me. I actually think about the stocks in my portfolio as being in a number of different categories, and those categories actually drive, in percentage terms, how much I invest into each one. How I think about them as a as a basket. So. You know, if you think, Phil, about your own highest conviction stocks, you know, maybe there's three or four or five that, you know, these are these define my portfolio. And they're, they're almost certainly going to be the largest allocations in your portfolio. But for me, I, I term these my core investments. And these are companies that have just executed almost flawlessly over the period I've owned them. Extremely high conviction for me. And... That, that makes up the backbone of my portfolio. So those core stocks, they're about a 6% allocation each. I've got about mm. six or seven of them. So in total, they add up to about 40% of the portfolio. That really is the engine room. It kind of drives on my returns. But if I look at the other end of my portfolio, I've got mm. a, a bunch of investments I class as venture stocks, venture investments. And those are tiny allocations, kind of up, up to about 1%, typically about half a percent each. And if I'm really honest, I expect the majority of those to kind of go nowhere, probably to fail. But I think one or two of them are going to do well, hopefully deliver a significant return, you know, at least a 10x, maybe even a 100 times return. And if just one of those can deliver that, well, that's going to outweigh all of the other failed investments in that venture category. So I've got a few other categories, but that's kind of that's the kind of two ends, the the barbell, if you like, of my portfolio.
2: Can we just dwell on portfolio allocation for a moment? You mentioned that these core holdings are about six percent each, making up forty percent. Is there any reason why you came to that kind of weighting? It's uh, so just, is. Evol- just so, as
1: evolved. No, no, no it's it's evolved a little bit, but there is some logic as well. So mm. and I think this is a good this is a good principle for all investors. You've, I'm I'm sure you've heard of the term dollar cost average, DCA. You know, it can you can put yourself in a difficult situation. I've actually made this mistake myself with a company called C Limited. If you buy too big a position all in one go, you're really exposing yourself to volatility. And for good or for bad, and in my case, with C Limited, that really, really hurt my portfolio because I bought a, a big allocation in one piece. So what I prefer to do, and I broke my rule with C, is I prefer to buy, I say, in thirds, sometimes even though more than three pieces. So typically, if I'm coming to take an initial position, in a company I've done some preliminary Due diligence in. I think I've got a good handle on. Maybe I've read the 10K. I've read the the most recent 10Q. I might have listened to a podcast with the founder. I feel like I understand the company, and I want to add it to my portfolio at a potentially a high conviction. Well, I'll typically not take more than a two percent stake initially, and then so that's that's two percent. That's two percent of your overall portfolio. That's the case. Exactly. So that number changes mm. over time. You know, Typically, it's kind of generally going up as the portfolio grows, those 2% become bigger. But that'll be my kind of day one allocation for a high conviction stock. That's and right. then once I've got that 2%, what I'll try to do is try and resist the urge of fiddling with it, messing around. I'll just try and give the company a couple of quarters to execute and if they, if they execute in line with my investment thesis, I've always got a reason, certainly for these high conviction stocks, I, I understand why I own them. And if I see that story playing out, then uh, maybe after six months or a year, I'll add. And I'll typically, if the stock hasn't grown by itself, I'll add new money and I'll take it up to a 4% allocation. And then if I'm really comfortable with the stock, you know, if I'm seeing real green shoots for the future, in rare cases, one of those companies becomes a core allocation for me, and I'll perhaps add new money or I'll let it grow organically, but I'll bring it up to a 6% allocation. So kind of 2% times 3. That's how I got to my 6%. And I do have a bit of a rule, which I don't think I've broken, which is I won't add new money to any position beyond 6%. So I've certainly got some allocations that are way higher than that, even today, but they've got there by growing themselves as opposed to me sticking a lot of money in and uh, kind of artificially buying myself to that position. Essentially, let your winners run and let the, the best stocks in your portfolio show themselves to you, reveal themselves to you.
2: It's interesting, isn't it, Uh, that idea of letting your winners run? Because there's always that temptation when it's 10% up, oh, if I sell now, I've made 10% or 20% up. Or I mean, I've recently had this um, uh, situation myself where I've had a a gold miner run up and I think it got up to about 60%. Now it's back at about 40% up. And I'm just, for the first time in my life, resisting the temptation to sell it. And um, I think the quote that I've heard is, why would you put Michael Jordan on
1: the bench. <laughs> I've not heard that uh, metaphor, but yeah, I, I tend to think in terms of water the flowers and uh, trim the weeds. But our instinct as an investor is sometimes to do the opposite: cut back our winners because we want to take some money off the table. We you know protect our gains and add to our losers because oh, they've got to turn around. You know, they're they're so cheap. How can they possibly get cheaper? But time and again, the market teaches us that those are the wrong things to do.
2: So, does the portfolio weighting shift around? Like, if one particular company becomes a lot bigger, they're obviously going to, you know, if you do have a winner, it's going to suddenly become 8%, 10%. What do you do in that um, situation? Always my
1: first instinct is to do nothing, let it run. Um, it's only really if the thesis has changed. I'll give, I'll give, I'll give, actually, there's a caveat to that. So, I won't trim if the thesis is intact because the company is executing it looks great but there are there are perhaps two situations where I will trim and I'll, I'll give two examples of this actually from my twitter thread so um one is a company netflix which i owned through these sort of heady days where it actually delivered over a 200 times return for me 210 times return and you can't get that kind of return unless you let the story play out. And another example there was Shopify as well in more recent years. The, the stock's taken a bit of a hit in the last couple of years, but it really went on an incredible run um, through the late 2010s. And and I was there at the time as a having it as actually the largest position in my portfolio. The rule I've come to for myself is driven by my own uh, really uh, frankly ability to sleep well at night if a stock gets to about a 20% allocation in my portfolio so maybe i you know bought it up to 6% and perhaps it more than tripled so uh, you know versus the growth of the overall portfolio so now it's getting on to about 20% at that point i'm really challenging myself to say well really i should be trimming this back because i'm too overexposed and i've done that a number of times essentially it's good portfolio management discipline, but then there's also I think I never used to use valuation um, strongly enough in my process. If I'm really honest, for decades I was a story investor, you know, strategic investor, looking at the thesis, looking at how the company was executing against it. But actually, 2022 taught me some really hard lessons, and valuation is important, is critical. So a company that I've trimmed in my own portfolio about five or six months ago—well, not that long ago, perhaps about April—but I was a little bit early in trimming was Nvidia. So I came somewhat late to the party with Nvidia. I bought it twice in my own portfolio, I think June and then maybe July or August last year. But it really went on a tremendous run, and I got in before that AI story really started to be seen in the valuation, and now. Every company is yabbering about AI in their earnings calls, and they all want NVIDIA's hardware and software to power it. So that's really driven the valuation to, in my mind, almost unsustainable levels. So that's my new process of the last year or so, is actually to use valuation as well as part of my process and trim back, as a result of that, trim back my NVIDIA allocation. But with a view, I've still got NVIDIA in my portfolio. It's now down to about a 2% allocation again, but I've trimmed it back with a view to hopefully adding if the valuation improves.
2: Okay. So I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the idea of valuation. What are the metrics that you use to ascertain? I'm assuming that you're saying that once a company like NVIDIA gets becomes the subject of so much height that its value is not there anymore? Is that kind of
1: what it, what you're looking at? I think that the market is, in that case, the market is valuing it too highly. There's so much excitement and FOMO, frankly, built into the share price. It's, it feels like it's an, at an unsustainable level. Actually, I haven't looked at the numbers in the last month, but at the point where I was trimming it for valuation purposes in my own portfolio, I was really looking at the company on a price to free cash flow basis. And it's one of my favorite valuation metrics right now, particularly because, um, you know, potentially the world is going into a recession. As consumers, you know, potentially we have less discretionary money to spend on fun stuff, but that happens to companies as well. And they'll have the customers of NVIDIA will have less discretionary money because you know, their customers can't spend as much cash with them. So you have this big sort of cascade effect and all the suppliers up the supply chain uh, will start to struggle. So we will, in some cases, we'll see that benefiting companies, companies like, for example, CrowdStrike, where they are the you know, unarguable leader in their field. They're very well capitalized and a tough macro environment is actually probably going to be a tailwind for them. It's going to help them because it's going to really hurt their competition. And they've got enough money in the back pocket. They've got plenty of cash on the balance sheet, and they're profitable. They're generating money every quarter, free cash flow, which is essentially, by definition, it's the money left over after they've paid all their operational expenses, where the leadership team can decide how they're going to spend that money, either invest it back in themselves Perhaps make a pay a dividend or you know do a share buyback, but they can do some got some choices they can make there. So I think free price to free cash flow is a really helpful metric right now because it tells us companies that are profitable. uh, It tells us kind of how sustainable their business model is if the world gets tough. And when I looked at Nvidia on a price to free cash flow basis back when I bought it, and really. Back for over over a decade or two, the company's never really traded much higher than 50 times free cash flow. And about two months ago, three months ago, it was trading at 180 times free cash flow. So that just felt unsustainable to me. Even if um, all of the sort of hopes and aspirations of AI investors play out, it's going to take a long time uh, for an investor to see a return at such a high multiple. So that. That was my thinking for that particular company. You can't always use that metric. If you look at a very young company, it may not be generating real earnings, it might not be generating free cash flow. So you might have to look at it on a price to sales basis, look at the, the multiple of the revenue it generates, because it hasn't got to profitability. So there's there's some kind of different, it's a bit of an art really, but there's different metrics should apply depending on the nature of the company.
2: company. There's a million ways to invest in stocks, but by following a few simple rules, you can avoid many common investment traps and unwanted anxiety. What if you were able to follow seven advisors, seven principles, and seven monthly stock picks on your own terms? Seven Investing might be for you. They want to invest for the long haul in great companies with great leaders who can compound capital for years. Seven Investing are pleased to offer listeners of this podcast a free trial for a week and 33% off the annual price if you sign up using the promo code STOCKSFORBEGINNERS. This is solid research from experienced advisors who live and breathe the markets. Go to 7investing.com. That's the number 7 investing and use the promo code STOCKSFORBEGINNERS to get your absolutely free trial and 33% discount on the annual premium plan. I know you like your gardening analogies and you mentioned green shoots previously that um, when you're looking at a company where you're investing 2% of your portfolio into, you're looking for green shoots before you commit
1: any more money to it. What do some of those green shoots look like? Uh, um, Essentially, it's just, is the company executing against the investment thesis? So if we stick with the idea of NVIDIA, back when I added it to my own portfolio, at that time, just coming up for about a year ago, actually the company was making the majority of its money from its gaming segment. And if we think about what NVIDIA do, if it really boils down to it, they design GPUs graphics cards. And smaller graphics cards go in like a regular PC or in like a handheld device. You know, I've got a NVIDIA graphics card on my computer right now, and the gaming segment, which was essentially kind of, you know, home PCs and games but also cryptocurrency mining, that was the dominant sector generating revenues for the company. But it was very clear to me and to many other analysts, that wasn't the future of the company. The future of the company was data centers, which are a, it's a bit more complex, but essentially really big graphics cards, really big GPUs in clusters with some very clever technology to kind of hook it all together to do incredibly powerful parallel processing, which is fundamental to making AI work, essentially to run these large language models and generative AI that we're now seeing uh, lots and lots of examples of across really all industries. And it was very clear to me a year ago that that was to be the future. So the green shoots I was watching for the the following nine months or so until I trimmed were, is the company executing against that data center strategy? And um, are we starting to see growth there? And very quickly, data center became the dominant segment for generating revenue. And it's now you know, a very large part of the company's fortunes. But, but there's also another little piece, and I think it's quite interesting for a company like NVIDIA. We talked there about two of the segments. Well, they have two other segments. And one of those is uh, the NVIDIA drive platform, essentially autonomous driving. So we all think about Tesla, you know, I've got a Tesla on the driveway, and Tesla have got their own strategy for get delivering autonomous driving. But actually, if you're not Tesla and you haven't got these incredible engineers and this vertical integration, well, actually you're probably, if you're a Mercedes or a Ford or a Hyundai or whoever else, you're probably partnered with NVIDIA to license the NVIDIA drive platform, which is sensors that go in the car and the software and the really clever stuff in In terms of uh ai technology to be able to sort of see what's happening in the world and then uh navigate the car so everybody else is doing is using nvidia essentially uh, maybe apart from waymo as well alphabet now that's a tiny part of the thesis for nvidia it's really not material to their numbers today but that could be enormous you know that could even perhaps eclipse data center as a segment one day in the far future when this stuff is commonplace. And so I I like to find sort of green sheets like that as well. Optionality, does the company have these fun little interesting things that it's pursuing almost as a bit of a kind of side mission, but could become something that's quite material in the future. You mentioned before one of your core holdings, which is CrowdStrike. What do CrowdStrike do? Tell us about that company and where they're listed. (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite companies. And actually, I <laughs> literally just installed CrowdStrike software on my PC about a week ago just to get a better handle on it. But it's not designed for guys like me, it's designed for big enterprises and, and big companies. They're an endpoint protection uh, company, so in kind of cyber security. And if we think about what's happening in the world, m- huge increases in hacking, also state sponsored hackers. You know, you've got governments in different parts of the world with their own kind of hacking teams. And so companies need to protect their data, which is essentially, now it's like mission critical. If you can't protect your data, your reputation is in tatters. You know, your company could literally fall apart. So cybersecurity has always been a top two or three priority for CIOs across all industries. Well. I mean, it's essentially number one priority today. I think it was dueling with remote working and you know keeping the lights on during COVID. Now the pandemic's behind us, cybersecurity is pretty much unarguably top priority for every CIO. I, I, I've used this phrase with colleagues before. I think there used to be a saying in the maybe the 1980s. Uh, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Today, I think you could arguably apply the same uh, logic if you're a CIO to CrowdStrike. It's the Forrester and Gartner leader in endpoint security. So I don't think anyone would ever get fired for picking CrowdStrike for their cybersecurity defense for their organization. And where are they listed? Is Are they a NASDAQ listing? Uh, I believe so. NASDAQ under the ticker CRWD. Mm-hmm. And actually, and... funnily enough, that is one of my core stocks. I've got a 6% allocation to that fuller. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, another one of your
2: stocks is um, Wise. Uh, and i think that's w i z e y um
1: listed as their their ticker. tell us about wise yeah hey do, have you do you use wise by any chance i know they're in australia i know my colleague anaban now does No, yeah i actually have just signed up because i've got to take um payments from international
2: payments so yes i've become familiar with it and um they're very very impressive Platform. In fact, I've been talking to other business owners who take overseas payments that have been using OFX. I think, and um, right, I've been saying, right. well, maybe should you should yeah. try Wise. I think their fees are a lot
1: better. Anyway, I'm I'm just there, a newbie are, in this game. Uh, no, not at all. Well, you know, I I discovered Wise myself about a year and a half ago when I started working for Seven Investing and I needed to receive payments in US dollars. And I thought, well, actually, I need some, I need an international banking capability, and I mean frankly just kind of had a bit of a google around and there were only one or two names that popped up as highly recommended so I got my Wise business account and I, I, was I wanted so, to get one of
2: those as well one of those cards because you can travel with it as well and not get those fees those it's, outrageous fa- it's fabulous. Credit well, card I travel fees. with this
1: and I also I travel with my Wise personal card as well now mm-hmm. and that's where I do all my international banking and let me just let me tell you why I think they're so fantastic I'll give you a little anecdote I've just come back from a trip to India and Sri Lanka with my wife who we went out there for about a month or so and you know if I think about historically before I had wise and I banked with HSBC, I used to work for the bank for twenty five years. If I were traveling overseas, I'd use my credit card and my HSBC debit card and when I get home, uh, you know, I'm, I'm able to use those cards and pay. It's not no, no friction. It's dead easy. But when I see my statement back home, there are really quite significant fees added on to every transaction, and the banks have to break it out. So it's really in your face how much it's costing you to use uh, these cards overseas. It's not it's not very pretty. So when I travelled to India and in Sri Lanka, I was able to in the Wise app just online. I created a little pot, like a basically a, an account in. Indian rupees and a separate account in Sri Lankan rupees. And then I was able to do a a transfer from sterling into these local currencies. And I had then had essentially sort of kitty of money to spend. When I did that transfer, I got the spot rate. So if you go to Google and say, you know, how many rupees for one pound, that'll give you a number. You know, if you went to your foreign exchange bureau in the, the high street, or if you went to your Bricks and Mortar bank, they're gonna have the price they sell it to you and the price they buy the currency back and you have this big spread, which can be quite a few percent, particularly on a, a slightly rarer currency like Sri Lankan rupees. You know, you could be losing five or six percent between the buy and the sell price. Or well, wise give you that price you see on Google. These you get the mid price, which is incredible, and they charge a transparent fee, which is currently about 0.74% I think and their target actually as a company is to get that fee to zero they're trying to target getting costs of fx down to nothing because they, they're making incredible revenues from lots of add-on ancillary services with my Wise card now because the UK is a, a fairly pilot market for the company they're actually able to allow me not even to sort of earn interest on my balance I can keep my balance fully invested in the MSCI World Index or in treasury bonds. And if I go buy a cup of coffee, well, automatically on the platform, you know that three or four dollars disinvests and the coffee gets bought, but I'm kind of fully invested at all times. So (laughs) I couldn't do that with my HSBC account. It's fantastic. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So they really pride themselves on transparency, cost, speed, and convenience. Oh, and I I said an anecdote. From Sri Lanka. So uh, when we were there, I had a local vendor. I was trying to send a bank transfer to to pay for a safari. And this chap wasn't really set up properly. And he, he said, oh, just do a transfer. Here's my sort of essentially like the local version of my checking account number. If I tried to do that with HSBC, it would have been absolute torture trying to do that with Wise. It was dead easy. You know, I already had a Sri Lankan bank account myself, essentially, for the duration of my trip and it took it was the case of 30 seconds just to do a transfer to his bank account effectively you're banking like a local so it's just a really great proposition i highly endorse it and i'm i sounded so enthusiastic there you know i'm not paid <laughs> by the company um, yeah and well, this is again, no recommendation to
2: buy the stock or anything but um you know we've both had really a, good it's experiences a great with it stock. Yep. Yeah, it's a Mm.
1: great stock. And you know, funnily enough, it wouldn't be any surprise you how enthusiastic I am about the company there. They get, I think, two-thirds of their new customers come through referrals. And indeed, I've referred this company to many of my friends and family.
2: And it's interesting, the idea that they maintain what are called local liquidity pools. Is that the way they bypass foreign exchange that they have? Like in Sri Lanka, they'll have money and they'll have some cash as
1: well in India and all around the world. Exactly. You, uh, mm. you picked up on where I sort of skipped over how the magic happens. Essentially, <laughs> when Wise does a transfer from, say, Luke wants... He's got pounds and he wants to buy Indian rupees. All Wise essentially do is they make an adjustment in their big ledger in the spreadsheet. And they take some money off me over here and they allocate me some money that they already have over there in India. And no transfer actually takes place, which is why they can essentially do that transfer instantaneously, because they don't have to go through this horribly complicated correspondent banking infrastructure that has uh, kind of grown up over the last 30 or 40 years to allow kind of traditional transfers. This is how normal banks send money. It actually goes through lots and lots of hops and steps, which takes time, incurs fees. Boys don't do any of that. They just have these pots of money all around the world. And if you you know do a transfer, they just put it down in one port and then they increase you in the other port and there you go, transfers happened. So let's get back to your portfolio. Cash. What role does cash play in it? Uh, it is critical. It's critical. But it's, I think it's it's somewhat unique to someone in my situation, perhaps, because I'm now essentially retired. I uh, have been for about two years as a result of being an investor for 19 years. So I'm not adding new money to my portfolio. In fact, I'm paying myself from my portfolio. I'm kind of taking a withdrawal every month to pay the bills and pay for my Sri Lanka vacations. Now, if you're in that sort of retirement phase of portfolio management, a typical way to navigate that is you have a whole bunch of income stocks. So, you know, some of your stocks will pay you a dividend and then that's your kind of pocket money, your dividends or what you live on. I have a small number of income stocks, but I haven't really focused on building that allocation in my portfolio my investments are far more growth oriented. So the way I simulate having essentially the ability to pay myself income is I just have a slug of my portfolio. I think it's currently about 18% of my portfolio in cash. And then that 18% would sustain me for several years of outgoings. But the, the main benefit in terms of portfolio management is because I'm not adding new money to my portfolio every month. If I want to buy a new company, you know, I added to my position in something just a few hours ago, it means I don't have to sell something to generate the money to buy the next thing. Because I don't want to make two decisions if I don't have to. I really just want to make, you know, the one decision I want to make. So having a cash allocation essentially reduces the friction in my decision-making allows me to buy without having to figure out what I'll sell at the same time. So that can be quite powerful. And I think when you look over the very long term, I'll look back, say, two years ago, I I think I was incredibly lucky, more so than good judgment, if I'm really honest. I was retiring in November 2021, and I think my cash allocation was about, give or take, about 10% at the time. So still a substantial amount of money, but I wanted to increase that and build basically more of a cash allocation to give me a bit more of a buffer, but also sell some stuff so that I could build an income portfolio to start getting some dividends every month, every quarter. And so I sold. I looked across my portfolio. I applied that valuation filter and identified seven or eight companies. uh, And you'll see these in my Twitter thread scattered around where I just felt they were at the top end of their valuation. And if we think back to kind of November 2021, really luck because I was retiring, that's what drove, that's that's what catalyzed that rather big sell I did. Almost within days, the market suddenly turned and really the backside fell out of my portfolio. And I'd gone, I'd taken myself by selling to about 20, 25% cash. Well, as all of my stocks started to Almost half in value in some really extreme cases over the course of 2022, really humbling time as an investor. My cash allocation was steady. And so, actually, essentially, my cash allocation grew as a percentage because everything else was declining. So, I found myself sort of midway through 2022 with almost 30% cash allocation. And so, at the point where I started to feel comfortable, maybe we've seen the worst of this. I then slowly started to reinvest that 30%. And I'm about halfway through that journey. I think I'm down to about an 18% cash allocation now. And so I think I was lucky retiring when I did, but essentially, not by judgment, essentially what that's resulted in is me doing what they say you should do, selling high and now buying at better value points. And I said to my colleague, Christoph, on our own podcast uh, when we recorded just a few days ago, you know, I truly think if I look back in five years' time and do another one of these big reviews, some of those investments I've made over the last 12 months are genuinely going to prove to be some of the best investments I've ever made.
2: Just another part of the portfolio that we should explore
1: is the growth part of it. Yeah. So I've got this big sort of chunk in the middle, about 16 companies that I consider to be uh, my growth stocks. So we didn't really talk about those at the start. We talked about the core And we talked about the venture, like the really crazy stuff. Well, all the things in the middle are my growth stocks. And I think think I'm about a 30% of my portfolio is in 16 growth stocks. So what's that? About 2% each, give or take. And Wise is an example of one of those. So these are typically companies that I've, I really feel I understand. I've brought up to that 2% level, perhaps in one or two pieces, because I, I have got perhaps more recently into a habit of making that initial by 1%. And then I've maybe I've bought it twice, it's sort of gone 1% to 2% or it's grown to 2%. They're all typically around that allocation. And my sort of expectation with that category of stocks is they're all going to do well in general. And, you know, some m- won't make the cut, some I might have to trim away but i'm kind of optimistic i think on a, on a risk return basis that i'm going to see like a good market beating return i'll be looking at you know hopefully over the long term for a sort of 20 to 30% compound growth in each of those on average you know some will do better some will do worse but that's my my hope for that portion of the portfolio
2: do you have a definition of what you describe as a growth stock? Because there's a lot of definitions, and everyone's got um, you know slightly nuanced views. Is there? Um, what's your particular take on
1: what makes a growth stock? How do you know it's a, a fish? Like it looks like a fish, or it flaps like a fish. It's, it's not something that I've owned for years and years and years, and it's become a core stock. So I've that's sort of taken those off the table. But it's still a relatively mature company. So typically, the majority of my growth stocks are sort of small, getting into mid-caps. So let's say, I'm just waving my hands with these numbers a little bit, but between kind of a $5 billion and a $20 billion valuation, $30 billion valuation, and they're still relatively early in their story. So they have many years of compounding ahead of them. They're typically not mature. They're not paying dividends. They're not generating income. That's the kind of thing that happens generally later in a company's life cycle so typically they're expensive on a most valuations you might look at they're, they're expensive on those bases but i'm looking beyond with most of these beyond the, the short term you know i i expect to own all of these companies for 10 20 years perhaps never to sell them and so really when you take a very long view which by definition is you're looking through multiple cycles of the of the world sort of retracting Turning against growth and then back into growth, I'm looking for companies that really are early in their journey. They've got incredible potential. Typically, they all have incredible founder teams, a culture of innovation, and you know they've really got something to the story. But also, um, these days, I feel that they're a reasonable valuation. They're all expensive by typical terms. You know, if you were Warren Buffett, you probably wouldn't go near any of these with a barge pole. You'd say, oh, they're they're kind of crazy. There's so much uh, hype built into them. But my thesis for each of those kind of looks beyond the hype and sees a day where where all of those companies potentially are generating, providing services or products that I feel the world will need more of in the future. And so that's kind of the basis of my uh, approach to investing. So if listeners want to find out more about this Twitter thread, what is your handle? Yeah, well, you can find me on Twitter and now on threads as well. I've been playing with that. Oh, you've got you've gone things. over it as well, yeah. have you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you can find me at both of those at 7lukehallard, number 7 Luke Hallard,
2: All lowercase one word, I believe.
1: Uh, I think they're pretty both case intensive, but yeah.
2: So you work with Seven Investing, and this is where we've met and come across each other, and you're going to become a bit more of a regular guest on this podcast. Tell us a little bit about Seven Investing, and um, because listeners can actually find out more of your
1: wisdom and the rest of the team via Seven Investing. We've got an incredible team led by our founder, Simon Erickson, who really is a super smart guy who works incredibly hard at trying to understand some of these fantastic companies uh, that I've I've shared today and you know there's a couple that we're both super fans of and then he has a number of sectors that he's a real expert in as a firm we're really we're trying to make investing accessible to anybody uh, for a very reasonable subscription every month uh, you're buying access to hundreds of stock recommendations and each of the companies I've talked today about are you know, not giving away too much of the farm. There are seven investing recommendations, because I I own everything.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: That I've recommended for the service, and if you were to come and take a look at the site, and I think we're doing a one-dollar trial right now—one dollar, one U.S. dollar—you can sign up and check it out for a week for free, and then decide after that. You know, no commitment if you don't don't like the service after that week. But you're getting access to hundreds of stock recommendations, each of which have a several thousand word thesis. There is an exact summary for each one if you just want to cut to the chase. You've got a half an hour deep dive video where you see me and my co-advisors pitching these stocks to each other with a, a, a very solid presentation deck that you can get a copy of and a really tough Q&A. Is actually the best part of the process where we really try and drill each other and pick holes in the thesis um, you want to challenge. I mean, you, want, you, you want your ideas to be challenged, don't you? One hundred percent. That's the most powerful thing as an investor, whether you join seven investing or not. If you become the ostrich and bury your head in the sand and only look at the information that confirms your own biases, you know what you believe. Well, you're kind of setting yourself up for a nasty surprise. So it's always very valuable, can be painful, but very valuable to go and seek counter opinions from friends or family. Or from a community like Seven Investing, where you've got a whole range of opinions, just opens. It's good to be aware of the bear case, even if you don't believe it. It's good to be able to understand what that is, because you've then got a much more rounded idea of the stock yourself.
2: And uh, the recommendations are quite transparent. You keep a record as well on the, the showing how each of these
1: recommendations are performing over time. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. We mm. highly prize transparency. And, uh, you know, I think the best part of the service really is our Discord, our community. And that's where our members, our subscribers challenge us, ask us tough questions, but also actually add a lot of value as well based on their own unique perspectives. You know, one of the most valuable things, I think I mentioned I installed CrowdStrike on my own PC last week. It's really valuable if you can be a customer of the companies you invest in. And so I try to do that whenever I can, ideally less artificial than that. You know, ideally I want to be a genuine customer, like, a, you know, I'm buying stuff from Amazon every day. I'm an Amazon shareholder. I feel I really understand that proposition as a customer. Well, you know, if you get into a big investing community with lots of smart, active voices, if you're not a customer of one of those things, there's a good chance somebody else is, and you can benefit from their due diligence and their perspective.
2: And of course, listeners of this uh, podcast can benefit from a 33% discount on an annual plan by using the promo code STOCKSFORBEGINNERS. Luke Hallard, thank you very much for joining me today. Always a pleasure, Phil.
1: Thanks for listening to Stocks for Beginners. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future.